Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. Democrats, God put you on this earth to spend government money on the disadvantaged. Now, please go do it. I didn't say that. Someone I would rarely quote actually said it. Yes, it is David Brooks, the mushy middle kumbaya singing columnist from the New York Times. He is not my usual cup of political tea, but when Bernie Sanders and David Brooks agree on something, it's worth discussing why. The Senate this morning approved spending of up to $1.9 billion for a stimulus package. All 50 Democrats voted yes, and all 50 Republicans voted no. For the first time, Vice President Kamala Harris had to cast her tie-breaking vote. The House had already approved this $1.9 billion level of spending, and this afternoon it passed its Senate version. This will clear the way for the process known as reconciliation, which will allow the Democrats to pass actual stimulus legislation with specific details, even if Republicans still refuse to vote for it. Now, David Brooks wrote that he was sorry there wouldn't be some sort of bipartisan agreement, wah, wah, wah. But, and here is why I am actually quoting David Brooks right now today, he said that there were goals just as important as bipartisanship. Like, you know, restoring America's faith in itself and in its government and repairing what I actually am quoting from David Brooks, the social decay that has plagued us for two generations. Welcome to reality, David Brooks. <laughs> I do disagree with Brooks on only one point in this piece. This repair work is more important than bipartisanship, which I keep pointing out is a path, not a goal. The goal is to begin repairing this country. Now, this is a crucial reframing. This isn't just a stimulus bill, something to counter a recession with government money. But this is much bigger. This is a step, step one in attacking the extraordinary inequality that has become not a bug, but a feature of the American economy. The case for this is not neoliberal macroeconomics. This is not just a way to shore up demand in a downturn. This is far more ambitious, which is why we are going so big and we have to go so big and why we need to get this done quickly. First, because people actually need it. And second, because some of the rats are starting to desert the ship. I'm not mentioning any names, but Larry Summers had this piece in the Washington Post. Yes, Larry Summers, good old Larry. He admits he and Obama went too small in 2009. But here, he dumps his anxiety on us that this package could be too big and that we should at least, I don't know, talk about it, which is, of course, what we actually don't need to do right now. What we need to do is pass it. It needs to happen now, not take it to a committee, not drag this out, not water it down, not distract people, not confuse people. And here's what you need to know about Brooks versus Summers or the clash of the neoliberal dweebs, as I, as I dub it. Summers offers a highly conventional case that the stimulus spending is way bigger than the economic gaps opened up by the downturn, whether you measure this by how far we are below the economy's potential or even by how far household income has fallen. He is a Harvard professor, so I'm not going to argue with his math. But what I will argue, along with David Brooks and Bernie Sanders, is that Professor Summers has wildly missed the point. 
sure the stimulus is bigger than what we need to spend to get back to where we were before the pandemic, but we don't want to go back there. We want to build back better, to borrow a slogan. And that means spending now to create a fairer economy. A lot of the stimulus in 2020 didn't really do that. Much of it went to people and to companies who could afford to put it back in the bank. All that cash has helped fuel the wild stock market bubble and other financial speculation, which is not reflective of the actual real economy with working people, working poor people right now. We don't need more of that. What we need to do is get as much as we can to the people who are hurting, the people of whom this economy has never been fair, and now more people on top of that. That is the reason I so strongly support Bernie's call to include that minimum wage increase in the stimulus package, even though some senators are maneuvering to cut it out of the package. And that is a mistake, and I'll explain why. American corporations are sitting on trillions in cash. They are delivering amazing profits despite the pandemic. The latest reports show profits went up in the last quarter of 2020. Yes, I said up. While the new variants of the virus were spreading and deaths were rising, so some of those profits and some of that cash needs to be channeled to the people who need it most. Hardworking, low-wage employees and people who've lost their jobs and their health care and their houses and their apartments and still have to pay for student loans. People who were once just working middle-class people but are now working poor. Big companies can afford this. And the country badly needs to start setting things right. This is not the whole solution, but it is a start. Summers argues that pouring too much money into the economy could crowd out other spending or stoke inflation. Okay, sure, it could. But Larry Summers knows that the single best way to avoid those challenges is to create a more productive economy. Put people to work. And he also knows that a fairer economy will be a more productive economy. Which is why, in today's smackdown between neoliberal titans, I'm going to go with Brooks. We must go big on the stimulus. And Larry Brooks, I think it's time for you to go home. About time. We are so glad you're here with us today. It is Femme Friday. We have a great show. So much to discuss. Anna Gasparian is in the house. And later, Francesca Fiorentini joins us with her hot takes on... AOC, Larry Summers, we're going to be talking about it all. Uh, no Femme Friday, of course, would be complete without at least one takedown of Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. We're going to come back with that news right after. Oh, man. So much to discuss. We'll be right back after this break with Anna Kasparian. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I'm so excited to have our dear friend, old friend, Anna Kasparian uh, join us. She's, of course, a host of Weekends on Jacobin, um, on the Jacobin Network, which is also a magazine, of course. Go check that out, a periodical. And she is the host and executive producer of a little-known startup. I don't know. I don't know if you guys are going to do well. I'm, listen, I'm not a naysayer usually, but it just seems like you're like a little too radical for this space. Of course, talk about the Young Turks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nomiki. It's really good to be here. Uh, how many views does the Young Turks have? Because I've, I've lost count. It's like billions and billions and billions at this point. Yeah, I, 
I should know the answer to that. Um, and I should, I should honestly care more than I do, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know. So every once in a while, when um, I'm about to do some sort of interview, um, you know, you're, you're family. So with, with you, it's like, I'm never worried about, um, you know, having to know our numbers and stats before coming on. But like, if I do, CNN or something like that, um, I'll get briefed on what the numbers right. are. And it's been a while, so I, I don't know, to be quite honest with you. I mean, the reason I, it's just, it's ridiculous, like, at this point, how mainstream media still sort of rolls their eyes at this universe and how quickly it's shifted and how much they're investing in it as well. Um, but, you know, listen, not that I need to say this to people watching, but it's, it's an extraordinary feat and haha. Thank you. We can I mean, do it. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. I think that's the the main takeaway. And um, for me, what's really exciting to see is um, how much like the left media has been growing. Um, but at the same time, we have to be realistic about where we are, because, you know, in the last election cycle, I really felt that um, the left wing had built media enough to be influential in um, you know, having at least some sway in the Democratic primaries. And then, you know, we learned that we still have a lot of work to do. So um, I'm excited about that journey and I'm really excited to see where we um, land. And uh, I, honestly, what we need to do is like learn how to have um, disagreements with one another without uh, trying to blow each other up. <laughs> but other than that, I think that it's, it's inspiring <laughs> to see the growth. It's almost like this idea of solidarity uh, is a real thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And working together and organizing is part of that solidarity. Um, I wanted to, to discuss what's going on with AOC right now. And it's not just AOC. It really is. She's just the latest example of something that has uh, existed, I believe, throughout the history of, of discourse, uh, which is, of course, women who are not, uh, you know, they, they're not believed. Uh, they're... There are threats put on women, whether it's physical, violent threats, uh, rhetorical threats, to pressure them to be quiet or not step up. And I, this last week, it's so strange because you know she discussed in her her live stream on Instagram that the the idea of trauma, like she'd experienced sexual trauma, and then you know trauma doesn't go away; it kind of compounds. And I'm even feeling traumatized watching the discourse in reaction to her discussing this online. And uh, I know you experience attacks all the time. I, of course, do. I know several of our colleagues. What we do on Fridays, just so you know, is, is this is a show that is dedicated entirely to having women um, platformed in media because, you know, there aren't enough women um, in media partly because it's not encouraged enough, we doubt ourselves, but also there is this culture that comes at women when they speak out, progressive women in mm -hmm. particular. Um, so I'm curious to see, like, what, what are your thoughts in watching how the right wing and the left has questioned AOC's experience? Not that we need, like, not that we didn't know that there was violence and that we needed AOC to prove it, but that it was true um, that uh, she, they, they're making her out to be somebody who's trying to, 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 it's all about AOC, rather than just listening to a lawmaker, one of many lawmakers who've talked about their experiences. Um, I mean, what's, what's your take on all of this? There's just a lot to unpack. Well, I mean, I think the interesting backlash to focus on um, 
is coming from people who purport to be on the left because I'm not trying to excuse the behavior of the right wing, but it's more of the same. It's more of what we've seen from the right wing, especially in response to progressive female members of the of the House of Representatives, right? Like they've always been pretty vicious toward them. And that's certainly something that needs to be rooted out um, and, and, and discussed. However, um, I, I think it's important to focus on the left for the purposes of this discussion because it has left an incredibly bad taste in my mouth. Um, it has really disgusted me. I find it repulsive. And I don't see it coming from, um, honestly, like good faith arguments. So let me explain. Um, and I don't want to get into like gross fighting and naming names. Like I just want to focus on what the common themes are. So one common theme is that AOC does this live stream in order to deflect and distract from the fact that she was unwilling to work with Ted Cruz on regulating Wall Street. And so the fury, the anger has to do with the fact that she's unwilling to put her own biases aside in order to work with a man who helped to incite the riots that took place in the Capitol that day. Okay. Um, but there's, there's an added layer of stupidity in that argument. And that added layer of stupidity revolves around the fact that Ted Cruz is not a politician who ever has any interest in regulating Wall Street, in regulating big business, in regulating anything, to, quite, to be quite honest with you. His so wife works for Goldman Sachs, right? Exactly. It's exactly. Just, just, so, the, so all of this nonsense about like, oh, oh, no, no, we need to be vicious to AOC because she was unwilling to work with a politician who uh, put her life in danger, who put her safety in danger. Um, and by the way, who isn't even honest about what he wants to accomplish. Uh, let's be vicious because she can't put her own feelings aside. I, I don't agree with that at all. So again, there's that political component, which is um, just full of ignorant talking points and I can't stand it. And then there's the part of it that even if you dislike AOC, which if you're a progressive, I don't, you can critique her. There's certainly areas where critique is uh, valuable and necessary. And I applaud people who do that, but constructive critique is very different from what we've been seeing in response to AOC lately. Um, even if you dislike her, even if you have valid critique toward her, when you like, message to the world that you don't believe her trauma, you don't believe her lived experience. Sure, that might be hurtful to her, but she's unlikely to ever read your stupid Twitter comments. The, the reality is there are people who are with us on the left, many people who have been survivors of all sorts of trauma, including sexual assault. And what you're doing with that message is, is giving those allies, giving those people the same feeling that I had when I read those comments, which is, I'm disgusted by this. I find it repulsive. Do I want to be associated with a group of people who might have a similar ideology when it comes to how our economic system should be set up? But I don't want to be associated with them if this is the way that they treat other people in, their, in, in an incredibly vulnerable moment, right? You know, it's, it's interesting because I, as I was watching this this mob mentality. I mean, it really was. There were several hashtags, disrespectful, grotesque hashtags associated with her name that um, left me, it, rem it reminds me of the Gamergate situation. And 
you know, there have been too many think pieces that have come out of Gamergate, but ultimately what Gamergate to me showed was that there are in their institutional structure, structural biases in these platforms that we live on. And we talk about this a lot on the show is, is these big companies, these monopolies have the ability with a little like a switch to shift the way these conversations are rewarded. I can bet you there are probably, uh, may, I don't know what percentage, many bots or troll farms pushing certain narratives to attack certain people because they have political agendas or other agendas. And those tech companies know very well which ones are coming from troll farms or bots and they're not being shut down. The algorithms itself, I mean, in, on several platforms have been investigated to have very distinct misogynistic bias and racial bias, meaning uh, more prone towards white men. And that's kind of how this culture of Gamergate blew up and has spread onto other platforms. If, if anything, if anything, I hope what comes out of this experience with the, the coup and the attacks on, on the squad and other women, whether it's women I don't always agree with, like Maxine Waters or Nancy Pelosi for sure. If anything, I hope with their power that they can bring uh, an investigation and really hold these tech companies to account because it's no longer, you know, just some gamers. It's no longer just some podcast hosts. It's no longer progressive women out there and activists and writers. This is really spreading to a much more dangerous, I mean, got to the halls of Congress, literally. So, I mean, you're, you're in this space. Um, I've just been thinking a lot about like the incentive structure and mm -hmm. how, it's not just that these companies are making money off of it or Fox News makes money off of having Hillary Clinton's face on every day and Nancy Pelosi's face and Maxine Waters' face and now it's AOC all day long and Cori Bush all day long. They make money off of misogyny and women and anybody who wants to stand up for them are afraid. So they are silently, they, they're effectively silenced, as you said. Um, I mean, what, what do you think, like, do we have to do a better job on the left kind of explaining how these ecosystems work? Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. But I think the other side, um, and I don't know if I'm being unreasonable in, in wanting this uh, because I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, what really lacks on the left, even among um, reasonable, logical leftists who uh, agree with one another and consider one another friends. It's this unwillingness to stick up for one another, you know? And that's been like the most depressing part about all of it, because just like with any struggle, in order to succeed in combating that struggle, you need a collectivist approach, right? You need to organize. People power is incredible. Um, and by the way, quick shout out to uh, the Amazon workers at, yes. in Bessemer, Alabama, who are trying to uh, unionize and their um, union vote has begun um, under some intimidation by Amazon, of course, but I'm, I'm really rooting for them and I hope they do unionize. But the point here is that um, there's power in numbers and what happens with this um, manufactured online ecosystem with the bots and all of that is that 
People don't want to have their mentions flooded by sticking up with one for one another. People don't want, or I, I think some people are also still under the impression that the majority of those accounts are real accounts and they right. don't want, and by the way, and when those accounts start piling up and they start attacking you simultaneously uh, on anything you post, what ends up happening is that it gives real people the impression that you're a bad person or you're unpopular or your business is about to implode, like all sorts of nonsense that they just uh, you are repetitive the CIA about. or your best friends you with Madeline <laughs> by NATO. Right, exactly. Um, oh yeah, I just want to let so, everybody know this is the NATO funded portion of this. I, or sorry, right, I can't right, keep track. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I forgot, um, but maybe later in the show we can do the Clinton cash funded segment of the show. Um, but anyway, <laughs> if we have time. <laughs> if we have time. Um, but like, I, I think that, so I, I bring him up a lot because um, I think about him a lot and I think, I think about him every day and how he would handle certain situations because I think that he had the right grasp on things. And of course, that's Michael Brooks. And he had this, um, you know, he really believed in, in spreading kindness, like being kind to people, but being vicious to systems, right? Um, being brutal to systems uh, that put us in the positions that we're in today. And so... What I loved was that there was this feeling of solidarity and there was this feeling that we had one another's backs, right? And I love that. And we were, um, you know, protective of one another. And so whenever, let's say, I critique Tulsi Gabbard and her, you know, cultish following decided to come after me, no, he spoke the truth, knowing that they'd come after him too. And I really appreciated that. And I think that that solidarity goes a long way in keeping women strong. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not just about women, it's about leftists overall. But since this conversation is about women, when you feel that you have people backing you, it just, it empowers you, right? It, it gives you the strength to kind of get past all the bots, get past all the negative feedback that you're getting from dishonest actors. And it gives you the strength you need to keep doing your job, to keep doing the work. Um, so I would say that, yeah, it, it definitely it's important to do our jobs in informing people about how these systems work. Um, but on a very personal level, I think it's important for um, the left to really have one another's backs. And that's not to say to run away from any type of critique or feedback. I think constructive feedback is important because we need to have these discussions to really find the right strategies to move forward. Um, but that's very different from what I've been seeing on the quote unquote left lately. Um, it, it turns people off, not just people who do podcasts or shows. It turns ordinary people off when, you know, maybe their first, you know, their introduction to the left is one of these videos that includes nothing but juvenile fighting and, you know, nonstop backlash. Right. No, I mean, that's, uh, there's, there's, there's a misogyny, there's uh, the actual political goals, but there's also just a lot of clicks and money in, in the yeah. fighting. Um, so all of these things can be confusing for folks watching, not understanding where, you know, where the agendas are coming from. Um, because sometimes they can echo each other. But I mean, on the point of solidarity, I think one thing that I've been trying to do uh, intentionally and with focus, and I wish I had, and I'm really happy that, that you're speaking out about this now too. I wish I had asked for this years ago. Uh, it's isolating. When you're being attacked mm -hmm. and people don't believe you for whatever reason, um, or they want to distance themselves because they don't want to get in the crossfire, uh, I think... Women being attacked online 
need, we actually have to ask for help from our male allies because you don't know until you experience it. And I've had a few men uh, recently reach out and say, I had no idea until I just experienced it. And like, I had no idea. I had no idea. You talk about bots and I thought you were like a little bit off there. I'm like, no, it's fun. As soon as they experience it, they realize, okay, this is not organic. We know what organic mm-hmm. growth is. You know what organic growth is, is as you built TYT from the ground up. You know what organic growth is? Cause I've run for office and it's not easy <laughs> to like build that following. And, and the same thing with the show. Um, so, you know, for, I guess, my case to the audience would be, if you see any one of your favorite, um, especially women, uh, getting attacked, berated, ignored, uh, uh, dismissed, you know, not believed, have their backs. That's, that's the least we can do. It's hard, but we're targets. And I guess that leads to the next question about AOC and, and the squad. But I've been thinking a lot about, like, why... How did this happen? How did her conversation about verifiable events, like if this were a court of law and they were trying to basically uh, dismiss her as a witness, okay, call one of 900 million people who saw the videos and say, did you see the, uh, uh, the man's, uh, the, the security guard's head get smashed in a doorway? Did you see several uh, folks storm the Capitol with guns, with swastikas on their shirt? Oh yeah, you did? Okay, great. Yes, this event happened. I don't really understand other than putting AOC out there and tearing her down what the agenda is here. The right wing knows very well that they are caught in a, in a bad situation instead of moving on from it. And I don't know, they just are doubling down, tripling down, going after young, uh, progressive, working class background um, women who have really built their own power. And it's not going to work. That's what I mean, that's the most amazing news. Yeah, it's not going to work. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the right wing doesn't like what these women represent, right? right? So they're, I mean, the idea of strong women, I mean, Corey Bush's speech on the House floor last night was unbelievable. I mean, it it really woke me up. And, and I can't even begin to tell you guys, like the thing that I've been struggling with over the last year, especially has been, you know, after four years of the Trump administration, um, you, your senses become a little numb, right? Like it, like after one shocking thing, after the next, after the next, it's hard to feel anything. And so two things that really stood out to me was the day that the riots happened, like I had CNN on in the background as I was working. Um, and then I start seeing the video footage of what was going down and it stopped me in my tracks. Like I literally stopped and, um, I don't do I don't do live videos throughout the day because I, I'm overwhelmed with work I got to do for the the live show, um, but I hit up our you know uh, our senior producer and I was like uh, Brett can we need to we need to go live right now and he's amazing and he set it all up and we did it we did a live video, and I did it because that moment woke me up that moment was like no, this isn't a joke. This is real. And, and this is a moment where I don't know where we're going to land. I don't know where we're going to end up. And it was terrifying. And then Corey Bush's speech yesterday, it, 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 if it was a, if she was able to give me this jolt of inspiration, imagine what she did for so many other women out there. And the right wing hates that. They hate that. They can't stand that. 
And I think that you're absolutely right in that whether it's consciously or subconsciously, even people who uh, consider themselves on the left get persuaded to cover certain topics in certain ways that are rewarded by the algorithm, that are rewarded by these bot campaigns. And so I don't know, again, I don't know if it's conscious or subconscious, but I've seen so many people that I had a tremendous amount of respect for throughout my entire career, people who I would urge my journalism students to read, turn around and, and put out just absolute garbage in response to AOC and in response to the riots. Um, and it's just shameful, but it shows you that, you know, capitalism and the profit motive tied to capitalism works in, in, in mysterious ways sometimes. So not even mysterious, but it, it has the ability to really corrupt someone's uh, logic and reasoning uh, because we're all trying to survive. And I can tell you one of the most difficult things is to remain principled when all the incentives are to do otherwise, you know? It's, it's also some, it seems to me, and, and I'm, I'm going to assume who some of these people are because I've had the same experiences with people I've been reading since uh, late 90s, I guess. Uh, there's a triggering. I mean, they, because of capitalism, because of the state of media and how hard it has been for decades for uh, independent writers to make a living, to break through, maybe they did break through, maybe they were taken off air um, for, for, for being against the Iraq war or uh, exposing corruption in government or having fights behind the scenes with producers because they wanted certain stories up there. That stuff wears and tears at you. And I, I feel mm -hmm. like there are people in the left media right now who are having, um, they're, they're triggered by events and they don't know where to channel their energy. And I mean, I have disagreements with AOC and some of the squad, definitely on some votes, without a doubt. But ultimately it's like, well, who are our closest allies? Who are the ones who are gonna mm -hmm. help us the most get our agenda through? And my only suggestion would be, don't target them, target the, 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 big, the, the big folks who are, who are up against it. But I think there's this constant state of warfare that these experiences are triggering some people um, in media in particular. And when it goes at a woman, that's when I start to go off and think like, okay, if yeah. your trauma is coming out and you're targeting women, then maybe it's time to like, like really think about how, how misogyny creeps into all different forms of, of, uh, of capital basically. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's an interesting point. Um, also, I just think that, like, I think about my own role in media and my own experiences with a an incredibly male dominate, dominated place, right? It, it's not just that media is male dominated, it's politics that's male dominated. And so... Um, I, I made a decision, not consciously, but I realized that this is the way I've behaved throughout my entire career, where um, when I'm confronted with something that's obviously sexist, or um, when I'm confronted by people who are very clearly underestimating me because of my gender, um, I, I steamroll it because there's no other choice, right? Like I pretend like it doesn't exist and then I just kind of go into overdrive regarding like 
dominating, like like dominating the person who's doing this like sexist thing by working harder, researching more, doing better in how I broadcast the news, all of that. Like I make them a target and then I like overcome their sexism by squashing them in ways that they like didn't see coming. Like that's how I've thought about it, but that's not how most people, most women want to operate, right? Because that's not really addressing the core of the issue here. And I think that there's a problem on the left with um, maybe really considering how some of the rhetoric and how some of the treatment toward women um, is not only like sexist and all that, but like how it hurts and hinders the movement, right? Because again, we talk about appealing to uh, a broad group of people. We need a broad coalition to succeed. And you ain't going to succeed if you're not going to attract women to this movement. And you're not going to attract women to the movement if you're going to literally attack uh, verbally the most, I would say, popular female politician in this country mm-hmm. after she shared something um, traumatic in her life and, and was vulnerable with people and was transparent with people, you know? Transparent and vulnerable. And, and you're asked as a politician, you know, you get all these trainings and they say, okay, when you give a speech, you know, people relate to you and you're more, more vulnerable. You are asked to lean in, share, be vulnerable in sharing these deeply personal stories so that people understand them more, especially with a platform like hers. And there's the opposition, whether conscious or not, tears at you for being human. Um, totally. We had, uh, there was an event, I'm I'm on the board of Matriarch, and Matriarch uh, is launching this this training program uh, in the spring to recruit uh, working class, uh, labor-oriented women to run for office. And so yesterday there was this fundraiser, and Sarah Nelson was speaking, who's the president of the Flight Attendants Workers. Um, And she said something so powerful. She says, you know, I have been told throughout, you know, she's uh, a female president of the Flight Attendants Workers uh, Union. She it's a primarily female made up union. And she said, you know, I've been told throughout my career that it's not okay to be vulnerable. And she's like, any opportunity I have in front of a lawmaker to be vulnerable, I do because I want to lean into that. And we have to, that is our superpower as humans, but frankly, as women, she said. And I think that's the superpower AOC, no matter what happens with this whole, it's a teachable moment for many of us. It's probably a teachable moment for many men on the left who didn't even understand until they saw just how aggressive the right wing and some of the left were going at AOC. And I think at the end of the day, as much as it was meant to prevent other people from coming forward, you know, whether it's conscious or not, um, to be afraid of coming forward and being vulnerable, I think we as a movement need to understand there was so much more power in that that more people were educated through AOC, more people were educated through Sarah Nelson being vulnerable uh, at the Capitol when she's pushing for legislation than those who are tearing them down. Um, Totally. It's just, if you're going to have to choose between supporting your sisters, supporting people in the movement who are being targeted, and you don't want to because you don't want to feel it, trust me, the rewards are much, much greater if if that's what's going on in your head anyway. Um, yeah, the thing that the thing that really appeals to me about the left um, is that the fight, the core of the fight, is about ensuring that everyone lives a life of decency, yes. that everyone has a decent life, right? And 
that goes, yes, it's about material needs. There's no question, but it goes beyond that. Mm-hmm. It's to be decent to one another, right? And so again, a, a lot of the online discourse uh, has abandoned that. And I don't think, one important thing that I also want to say is um, the online discourse isn't indicative of left, like of leftists. Like I think right. that there are wonderful leftists out there who aren't online, who aren't part of this discourse and they're actually out there doing the work. Um, and I have nothing but love for them, but you know, for the purposes of this discussion, um, the most uh, visual part of the left happens to be online. And it's just, I just, I would, um, I would just argue that people are a little more thoughtful about the way that they uh, talk about these issues, the way that they talk to one another, um, not to save their own reputations. I don't care about that, but to really think about whether or not that online discourse is appealing to a broader group of people that we're trying to bring in because we're still small and powerless right now. Um, and we need to be real about where we're at. And so what do we do to overcome the corporate media narrative about the left? Because we're really playing into exactly what they want by demonizing a woman who uh, just shared something traumatic about her life. And not to mention what it takes to get to that position. I mean, the trauma that they had to endure, Cori Bush has run multiple times. She's had her car shot up. She had COVID twice while she was running for office. She had her car uh, uh, taken on the last day of her last campaign for office because she couldn't afford to make payments. Um, This is what it takes. This is what it takes, but she knew she needed to win for her community. And then on day one, what she had to face when entering Congress, I mean, this is a sur- this is superhuman. I mean, they are doing what what I question whether or not I would have the courage to do one of those things continuously over and over. Run for office despite experiencing all of that, and then going there and dealing with not only members in Congress who are conspiracy theorists, who are sexist to their faces, are racist to their faces, and you have to show up and and work with them, and then you're scolded for not you know, partnering with them on a bill, it is hard work. And so I, I'm, I'm, I commend you for showing up every day and fighting for all of us and fighting for them too, because they need, they need us too. Um, and of course I, I commend uh, any of our allies out there who have our backs because it's, it's not easy, whether you're an organizer yeah. in the community or AOC, uh, it's not easy. Yeah, thank you for saying that, Nomiki. And I feel the same way about you and everyone else, um, you know, who's in this fight uh, in good faith and, and, you know, is doing it for all the right reasons. Um, And, you know, we're, I'm also realistic about where we stand in this fight. You know, we're one small part of, um, I think, a a broader strategy that we need to have in order to accomplish the goals that we want, right? if we have a billion leftist podcasters and and leftist TV shows and internet shows, that's not going to accomplish, you know, uh, federal jobs guarantee, Green New Deal, Medicare for all, all of that stuff, like all the things that we desperately need right now. What we need is to empower 
people, ordinary people to come together and fight for what we want. Um, so let's, let's be, let's be welcoming to them. Um, I think that's important and let's have one another's backs. Uh, cause it's hard enough to fight the far right. It's hard enough to fight regular Republicans like Mitch McConnell, you know? Um, so it's going to really take a lot of people to, to fight together in an, um, organized way to accomplish what we need in this country. Anna Kasparian, the one and only, of course, host of uh, The Young Turks and executive producer, of course, and Weekends at Jacobin uh, over on their YouTube channel. Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh my God, we could do this for like, I, think I have like a million things I want to talk about with you, but I love it. I for love an hour it. Show. Thank you, Nomiki. I had a great time. Have <laughs> a good a day. Pleasure. All right, you too. Bye. We will be right back with the one and only Francesca Fiorentini to talk about some of the news today and maybe even what uh, Anna and I just talked about. So be right back. Welcome back to Femme Friday on the Nomi Key Show. Hey, this is that moment where I have to remind you all, uh, if you have not already joined our book club, this is the moment. Uh, we are full swing into the TNS book club. You can join it at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We have three different levels, one book a month, two books a month, or if you're as crazy as I am, four books a month. I'm only doing it because that's because I have you, honestly. There's a few of you right now <laughs> as nuts as I am, uh, along with the books that you get in the mail, you also get to, uh, we have a podcast conversation sometimes too, and hopefully soon we'll be doing some live uh, Zoom conversations with the book club, so go check it out right now. Francesca Fiorentini, my purple hey, sister. <laughs> what's going on? What's happening? Busy week, eh? Oh, it's been pretty busy. I'm so uh, in a in admiration, there we go, of your book club and you dedicating yourself to reading that much. I I read a lot, just not in book form. <laughs> um, but I did just finish, Linda Sarsour has an awesome biography out that I, I just loved. It's been out for a little bit, but right. I just finished it. That's how slow I read. And it's so good. I just encourage everyone to read that if it's not already part of your book club. Add that to the selection. Verso Books has, I forgot to mention that, Verso has... Uh, uh, joined us as our first publishing partner, but I'm, nice. you know, I'm that I have a bunch of you know, people give me suggestions all the time. So thank you. Yeah, no Francesca worries. Fiorentini, you are the host of the Bituation Room, best yes. name ever. It's a podcast and news broke on Al Jazeera. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Nomi. I was listening to a little bit of your conversation with Anna and I love it. And I'm so glad we're naming some of these like uh, tendencies on the left and like getting better and smarter about our kind of solidarity as we move forward. So anyway, super like I'm all jazzed after hearing that jazz, jazz, jazz. Do you feel, I mean, I'd love to get your take on this. Just um, the way that the squad in particular has been targeted. I mean, it's one thing that it's, it's, we expect it from the far right. They've been doing this for years with any women that rise up on the left um, or the center left. But this seems like a whole other level of, of their, you know, their fundraising off of the squad, the attacks on the squad. Uh, there are, I mean, platforms that basically like built their, their membership model off of attacks oh, yeah. on the squad. Other candidates are fundraising off of attacks to the squad. And yeah, it's, 
I mean, I was just thinking the other day, you know, after watching Rashida and Ilhan, Representative uh, Rashida Tlaib and Representative Ilhan Omar, you know, make sure to put some respect on it, that, you know, I was thinking, oh, I wonder who doesn't get death threats on their first day, right? That was my first thought. And I I highly doubt that Marjorie Taylor Greene got a death threat on her first day. Now, this is not about whataboutism, like we should give her death threats. No, it's awful. No one should receive death threats. Um, yes, of course you should receive pressure, calling, that is fine. There are avenues to exercise your democratic voice, uh, namely voting, but but so many other ways and we should encourage those. But like, just thinking about the privilege that comes along with not getting a death threat in Congress is insane. And, and I think a lot of folks have to, had to suffer very quietly because precisely they are afraid of being seen like they're playing some kind of, you know, identity politics card. They're women and they want to sort of, you know, like buck up and like do the job. And they've had to overcome so much. And I think. AOC really breaking down that that barrier and being able to say, look, I was scared for my life. This was awful. And guess what? It happens a lot more than you think. And she was able to kind of like, yeah, break that BS veneer that, that this doesn't happen or that we have to rise above it or that it, you know, ah, just let it roll off your back. This has been going on. The right wing has been inflaming these violent tendencies and like stoking the flames for years and then what happens? I mean, what's the real concrete, anything concrete come out of this? No. No. I mean, what comes out of this is, is Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, is a woman, by the way. <laughs> like, uh, you know, with, with, with all of this conversation, Marjorie Taylor Greene is, is abusing her power. She is, she comes out of a conspiracy theory uh, side of the right wing, but she is not the only one in Congress right now who believes these things and has come out of the, cons- I mean, even Ted Cruz came out of the Tea Party. So I think it's it's fascinating to see like the person who is removed from her committee position is a woman still, mm-hmm. but she's not the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to I want to play a quick clip because uh, Cory Bush, Congresswoman Cory Bush, spoke on the floor of the House last night powerfully. And and I would love to get your reaction. Let's play that clip. I cannot sit idly by and allow white supremacy and hatred to have decision-making power over our students' futures. To my Republican colleagues, let history remember what you did in this moment, a prerequisite for appointment to these committees and for all that we do must be that you love and represent all people, meaning all people. We owe it to our children. We owe it to their parents to have a House Education and Labor Committee that is committed to fighting for a country where all children have an equitable education in an intentionally anti-racist society. Let me say that again, an intentionally anti-racist society. From the Ferguson Florissant School District in St. Louis to the Normandy, Hazelwood, Riverview Gardens, Jennings, University City School Districts to St. Louis Public Schools, all of our school districts deserve better. Aristotle State University, University of Missouri, St. Louis, our tech and trade schools, St. Louis University and Washington University, they deserve better because our teachers and our custodial workers, our cafeteria workers deserve better because our students who don't have a roof to sleep under at night, our students who don't have running water at home, our students who don't have enough to eat deserve better because those living with student debt and those who desire to go to college deserve better. Our parents, 
they deserve better. We cannot build an equitable anti-racist education system if a seated House Education and Labor Committee member incites violence through the perpetuation of racist lies in an attempt to overturn an election. We cannot build an equitable anti-racist society if a member of Congress endorses white supremacy. We need to strip them of their committee assignments. And then we must pass my resolution, HRES 25, to investigate and expel them. Thank you, and I yield back. Yes. <laughs> What's the, the, is that the resolution? Oh, my gosh. Is that the resolution about accountability coming out of January 6th and, like, a full investigation? Or is, or is that the one where we're basically enacting Amendment 14 and saying that these insurrectionists and people who um, would give insurrectionists comfort are no longer able to be in Congress. Right. Right. I mean, that is ultimately what kind of accountability, if we can't offer accountability right now, if, if Nancy Pelosi in her house with her rules and her representatives and herself yeah. put at risk, if you can't have real accountability right now, what are you here for? So how about this, Nancy? Pretend that the insurrectionists are the left wing. What would you do to them? Yeah. I mean, like literally, like for running for office or like, you know, challenging one of your, your Democrats. I mean, seriously, this is it. It's like they treat the, the, the Democratic majority who does have power in this situation. And I'm, I'm not putting it all on them because there's the Republicans need to deal with this too. They treat progressives who challenge them electorally harder then they are treating Marjorie Taylor Greene right now. Yeah. I mean, and a perfect example of that uh, was, and people have been bringing this up because of the rights um, dragging Representative Ilhan Omar into all this as saying, well, she's also anti-Semitic, just perfect whataboutism, um, as if her comments around Israeli occupation uh, were anti-Semitic, comments that were misconstrued that she apologized for profusely. Right. I mean, and, and they were, they were just like, I didn't know that this was a trope that I was, you know, echoing that it could have been interpreted. I mean, she really bent over backwards and that was because of Nancy Pelosi basically asking her to apologize and creating an entire new uh, anti hate speech resolution in the house. Come on. And so what Cori Bush is saying there, I think is super basic. Do you support white supremacy? And if you do, you can't be in public service. You can't you can't be in Congress. But even more basic than that is and related. Do you in, do you support insurrectionism? Do you support what happened on January 6th? And if you do or you had ties to what happened, then you're out. It's so basic, like anti-racist, equitable democracy. Like we somehow were in a moment of hell that like that is radical. But thank God. God for people like Representative Cory Bush and thank God for people like Ilhan Omar and all these other representatives who are you're absolutely right. I mean, if we just had Pelosi to be to be like putting down the moral line in this moment, it would feel so much more crushing coming out of what happened on the 6th than it does now, which feels like at least there's like a part like there's some people who are just laying it down. I wanted to make another matter. Yeah, no, no, no. I want to make another point, which I think is really interesting when we compare like Marjorie Taylor Greene and like, you know, Representative Ilhan Omar and AOC is that because the right makes them such boogeymen, I think in the left and just generally their power is artificially inflated in our minds as if Mm -hmm. like 
well, they can do so much because the right art- artificially right. inflates what they can do. Do you know what I mean? And I think we sort of get lost in like, well, they've been in power for two years. How come we don't have a Green New Deal tomorrow? It's like, well, actually, just like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is new and fair, like relatively sidelined. I mean, in fact, Kevin McCarthy's not even sidelining her to the extent that Nancy Pelosi has been sidelining the squad in their, especially in their first two years. Like, let's not forget that they're they're powerful, thank God, but their power is not where it needs to be. And certainly with leaders like, you know, Pelosi and Schumer, they're keeping them very much on the side. Yeah, I mean, like it, it comes down to Democrats know how to keep their base in control and Republicans don't, or, you know, obviously Trump, he, Trump didn't come out of nowhere. They've been dealing with this for a while, but uh, the Republican party had put much of their energy into expanding the party through being anti-racist or attempting to be visibly anti-racist. Of course, their policies are much more, and you know, it's a whole other argument. Um, but Trump won out. Trump won out because he had Bannon and he had Manafort, and they did divide and conquer politics in a multi-way, pri- in a crowded primary. And, and then Trumpism grew exponentially. And so I think what Bernie Sanders almost did in the Hillary Clinton uh, challenge because it was more of a one-on-one in the end. Um, they were able to push back against him. But if he had been in a real multi-way primary, uh, Bernie Sanders, this could be Bernie Sanders' primary or uh, party now, and Schumer and Pelosi probably wouldn't know how to contain us. So that's the only analogy we'll ever give to this because I don't <laughs> believe in these sides being equal other than the yes. fact that they're the basis of a party and they're trying to contain the basis because... The centrist is the capital, and capital is, of course, not the the, the majority of the population. So, um, I, I there was something interesting that came out of the Biden administration um, that distinguished very clearly the difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and that is Yemen. I was truly baffled mm-hmm. yesterday, surprised, um, cautiously surprised that Biden has announced that he's ending U.S. support for the Saudi-led. Uh, offensive in Yemen. Let's let's play that clip. Clip, excuse me, clip of uh, President Biden speaking about this. This war has to end, and to underscore our commitment, we are ending all American support for offensive operations in the war in Yemen, including <laughs> relevant arms sales. So powerful. Uh, yeah. Saudi Arabia has been sort of an untouchable for a while in in U.S. foreign policy for Mm -hmm. quite a while, decades. What does this mean to you, Francesca? I mean, I think one of the most it's huge. I think it's absolutely huge. I think that um, putting a, a daylight in between American foreign policy and Saudi Arabia is critical. We cannot underestimate that. And the fact that um, there wasn't really a block that was calling for this, right? Uh, there wasn't a large organized, unlike in immigration or in climate change, you know, we don't, we lack sort of a fo- foreign policy block. It's more of a uh, kind of, it's more dispersed and there's also large consensus around it. And it's something that's super Bernie Sanders. It's like (laughs) the thing that Bernie Sanders led a charge in under the Trump presidency, right? Um, Leading the charge in the Senate and Congress to finally, um, you know, use the War Powers Resolution Act and try and scale back some of the executive power that Trump had. Of course, he then vetoed it. Um, But 
obviously what it means for the region is huge too. And I, I, I was reading that article and you sort of, you understand it's not just selling weapons. We were refueling, working on the, on tech on any of the planes that were then going out to bomb innocent civilians, right? Like this was, this was bad. This was not just we're selling stuff. We were fully complicit in this war that, you know, I don't know how many people have died, but there's massive starvation. Um, this is a this is a a human rights catastrophe that's been largely ignored. And so, we as folks who don't believe in American intervention, but who still believe that like there's a responsibility, is do no harm. Just do no harm. Just stop funding this. I think the other piece is that it's a proxy war, right? This is a proxy right. war against Iran. And so if if Biden really does want to resuscitate the Iran deal, which I really hope he does, and the Iranians have so far exercised a, a fair amount of restraint because they've got their own far right you know, folks in their country who are saying, why don't we strike back against Trump? They were like, hold on, let's see if Biden does anything different. This is a signal also to Iran that Biden is serious about entering, that he's serious about de-escalating, and he's going to, you know, draw a a few lines. You know, I think there are more need to be drawn against Saudi Arabia, but a few lines against this ally. Do you think that there will be pushback from Saudi Arabia? I mean, we, I think so. We don't know how necessarily, but they definitely can try. I mean, first of all, we know that in the region, like Saudi Arabia and Israel are in agreement, for example, right. that uh, the Iran deal is bad. So what kind of shenanigans or distractions or now, especially that they've got unprecedented weapons from the Trump administration, whatever they can do, I wouldn't put it past them. Um They've been trying to provoke a war, right? Like this has been like, okay, let's kill an Iranian nuclear scientist. Let's kill right. a top general. Let's see, you know, and, and we know that the attack on the scientists, it, no one's really claimed responsibility, um, but a lot of roads have pointed to Israel as having the technology and Israel's done varying degrees of this same kind of, whether cyber warfare or um, assassination in, within Iran, they're trying to provoke. They really are trying to provoke. So I think it's good that Biden's moving fast and quickly so that he gets himself and our country in a better position so that if there is an incident, you know, there isn't already a mechanism to go in and like respond through like a ground. They would like nothing more than to draw the United States into a ground war in Iran. Oh, my God. Right. Hawks on all sides want this. Um, so, yes, I think it's good. I don't I forgot what the question was because I was getting very excited. No, I, I love, see, this is, Francesca and I will talk offline sometimes about foreign policy, and and I love seeing you get animated because you're so knowledgeable on foreign policy. Um, it's, no, I mean, it's a side that a lot of folks don't don't see normally. Um, no, you, you answered it. It was basically if Saudi Arabia uh, is going to push back in any way. But yeah, yes. Um, before we wrap up, I really, the story uh, dropped in our, our box right before the show. Oh my God, I don't even know what to do about this. Um, tech, there's a bill in Nevada right now. Let's, let's, let's put that up on the screen right now. There's a bill in Nevada that basically, uh, as, as, our, as our own team member Piper said, Republic of Google, uh, <laughs> the Nevada bill would allow tech companies to create governments. Of course, we need to understand this a little bit more, but Democratic uh, Governor Steve Sisolik, if I hope, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, uh, announced a plan to, this is a Democratic government, 
to launch so-called innovation zones in Nevada to jumpstart the state's economy by attracting technology firms. This was reported on Wednesday. Um, By the way, this is not unique. I know that they do this in colonies. I say colonies, uh, whether it's Puerto Rico or um, islands that are still colonized by other uh, countries or westernized countries. They have these economic zones. They do this in cities across the country, whether it's Detroit or Buffalo, New York. There are these little economic zones all operating in their, you know, they have their own rules. But um, it's like a, it's, 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 it's like a crypto world. Uh, you know, the cryptocurrency world uh, becomes obsessed with this and they start flooding money in that's not traceable in a lot of these economic zones. I mean, tech companies, big, you know, there's developers who, who see an opportunity once they see that tech companies are coming in. Um, what's, what's your take on all this? I just think it's ironic that it's in Nevada. Like, Nevada's already its own free trade state. Like, there's like a turducken of tax-free havens. Like, how, how many more do you need? Like, didn't... <laughs> Wasn't Amazon running all of its operations through Nevada because it like doesn't have any whatever taxes? It's just, you know, Las Vegas, Nevada. Hello. Anyway, uh, you're absolutely right to, to draw the link between the export processing zones that have been pushed by the World Bank and the, Glo- yeah. uh, you know, World Economic Forum and IMF and all those folks throughout the global south as like, well, here's where just labor laws don't apply. You know, this is great. And that's what they're doing to the United States. And, you know, you, I just link it to looking at Joni Ernst in mm. the early hours of the morning, just so self-satisfied that she, you know, for the time being crushed this uh, initiative to have $15 an hour minimum Un- wage. And you're like, believable. Why are you, like, what do you, we yeah, exactly, what do you want us to become? You know, what do you want Thank the American... You, you want us to basically, you want to keep poor people poor, fighting for crumbs so that you get more Republican voters when you stir up the base against immigrants. That's it. That is, and you want us to be mindless worker bees with no access to higher education or any education, not even higher education. And the future is, okay, well, we're going to be thanking our lucky stars that we get to work in sweatshops for nothing. I mean, for all the talk, I'm sorry, about China, and how, oh, China is so terrible and the human rights violation. They want to make us China. They want the United States to look and our worker protections to look like a sweatshop. And, a sweatshop. and again, and, this and is an, an autocracy. It's, it's, it's in an autocracy. This isn't, a, this isn't a fantasy communism. This is an autocracy. Oh, yeah. And I'm not saying that it's good. Oh, keep those jobs over there. No, no, no. I believe in global justice and reigning in global capitalism, that everyone deserves a fair wage and that we need international labor protections. I'm just saying, let's not get it twisted what Republicans are trying to do. And these tech, the yeah, these these innovators. There's nothing innovative. That really gets me. I mean, like you said, what do you want? There comes a point where they're not even going to get the worker bees because no one can buy their cheap-ass products because they're not making enough money to buy their cheap-ass products. We already exist in that point. It's like the $15 minimum wage, the stimulus checks to me, I don't understand it. Surely some real estate developers and some uh, landlords are mad that, I don't know, uh, Everybody under the age of 45, not everybody, I should say, but anybody who stepped foot in a university, doesn't mean they graduate because they still got to pay those, are spending whatever they're making on student loans first 
Yeah. Which can be thousands of dollars in some scenarios and aren't able to get to rent. That's not good business for all these other interests, credit card companies, uh, landlords. So I don't understand. We are a consumer-based economy. Right. We all the small business. Paid. <laughs> all this like, oh, let's save restaurants. Like, man, I went out and got a couple coffees. It was like $10 later. I was like, well, I'm never going outside again. <laughs> no, but it's, it's like, what do you, we, I want to support local businesses. They do need the support. People need the like cash and can right. like comfort, not comfort. They need to be able to take care of their basic needs. So they can once in a while go out and get a coffee or go have dinner. Right. Like, well, they what realize is, that what are we the doing? stimulus is actually about stimulating the fake economy, Wall Street, not about stimulating the real economy, which really just comes down to, like, how, is it just about numbers? Is it just about speculation at the end of the day? I right. can't understand where the reality is here. How these lawmakers think they're going to get effing votes from any voters if they did not support a stimulus, which a $2,000 stimulus, which 78% of Americans support. If they don't support a $15 minimum wage, which is overwhelmingly popular in Republican states like Florida that just passed it, like, right. how do they oh, think God. this is not going to catch up? What political uh, calculation, I mean, who, which donors are telling them not to do this? Which ones, other than the monopolies when it comes to $15 minimum wage, which ones are saying don't give out $2,000 checks? Because I don't know any industry that is against that right now. They're yeah. just like, whatever. It's great. Yeah, it'll pump you. Who's against it? Exactly. They're, they're excited for the, the coming revolution. They're very excited for it. They're they're making sure it happens, and I hope it happens. I'm serious. I mean, I do think on a certain level we need we need um, you know, we've you've talked about this, you have labor leaders on, and I do think a renewed labor movement and a re- renewed um workers' rights movement that is broad, that is inclusive. Uh, is coming. And I, you know, if they're not able to adequately handle the response, I think today was a good first step, but you're absolutely right. It's like, by the time we get 15, it should be 20. You've said this a million times. It's like, you know, oh, yeah. so. And, and the good thing is, is that um, unions, there are more unions that are form- uh, forming, um, more industries that are unionizing and more people joining unions. So if there's one good thing to come out of this cat- catastrophe, it's that. Uh, before we wrap up, I just want to play this clip. Quick reaction uh, because I think it's very relevant to this moment. Representative Ilhan Omar uh, made some points about who we are as a people, as 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 a country. Oh, one second, we lost it. So, how's the weather where you are? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we should get more rain. You know, we need yeah. all the water we can so we can put out the fire in the summer. No, me right, right. This is California. Welcome. You can't we just are. manufacture water. They don't have that figured out yet. Isn't that's what Elon Musk should do? Stop spending all this time on like rocket. We need ships. a giant tidal wave. We we'll just nuke the coast, and then a tidal wave will extend the Sierras and put out all the water. I'm there a genius. It's just that, and you know, <laughs> like my dad used to say about Arizona. I, I he has there's great big beachfront property in Arizona. There's not a lot of water. Bring the water <laughs> Dad joke. All right, let's play. Dorsey's like laughing at me in the chat. We've got the clip. Let's play it. Okay, okay. <laughs> Millions of Americans can't afford to put food on the table and feed their families. Millions can't pay rent and face housing insecurity. Millions lost their jobs during the pandemic and can't afford basic necessities. The last thing people should be worried about is their student debt. 
Nearly 45 million Americans are shackled with student loan debt, and the amount of debt the average student carries continues to rise. We know that student debt is not a result of bad decisions or behavior. It is the result of a broken system that tells students to get an education or go to college in order to have a stable life, but then does not provide the resources to afford that education. It is the result of a two-tiered system, one for the rich families who can afford tens of thousands of dollars for higher education, and another for the poor and the middle class who have to pay off that education for the rest of their lives. I always say America does not suffer from scarcity, we suffer from greed. We can choose to lift the burden of millions of people face, we can actually invest in the future of the American people. Today, we are taking a needed action to tackle the student loan debt crisis by using executive authority under the Higher Education Act to cancel up to $50,000 in student debt for federal loan borrowers. This is an important first step, but we can and must go bolder. We cannot be too bold in responding to the pandemic and providing needed help to the American people. I, I love that she centers this around greed. Um, I'm kind of baffled uh, that Senator Schumer is now stepping up regarding student debt. But um, I mean, what are your thoughts on, on just their partnership at this moment? I mean, that's what you do when you're scared of being primary. You know, I mean, he, I mean <laughs> this is... This is a beautiful thing that uh, I think we've gotten. I mean, all of this, I've been thinking about organizers this since I woke up and I saw that, you know, that despite the 50-50 deadlock in in the Senate, that my N1 Kamala was able to was able to break that. And I think that, you know, it goes back to. I guess I'm I'm heartened by the work of the organizers. My heart and we're in this position to even have an executive action um, and that would mean so much to so many people. And it's so easy. It's like, what's the argument against it? Like, there's no, you're like, oh, we're going to, not even, like, there's no even private industry that's like, but me, it's all federally held loans. So, and it's not even creating a new bucket of money or like a, you know, how are you going to pay for it? No, you just, you, you just eliminate it. (laughs) So it's the economy. Suddenly all these people who are spending any anything from you know maybe a couple hundred bucks a month to thousands of bucks a month can now I don't know pay the rent. Absolutely, we don't have Hoover bills everywhere. That's absolutely amazing. no. I'm so glad that sh- that that Ilhan Omar and others are pushing for this. And I think I think Biden. Look, I don't think ten thousand is another number that was floated. No, no, no. To do fifty, do fifty or everything. But fifty is like that makes sense. Don't means test it. Don't. It's just. Up to 50. If 50 absolves all of it, good for you. Go live a life. Go buy a home. Go start a business. Go feed your kids. You know, like basic stuff. Francesca Fiorentini, we love when you join us. Thank you for joining us for Fun Friday. This was a killer show, if I do say so myself. I could have just sat and listened to you you two talk. 
Um, oh, please. Always no, a pleasure. Naomi, I'm so always happy to be on and I love your show. I love all your viewers and everyone who works on this show. I love great. your show too. <laughs> Go check out the Vituation Room. Who's on this week with the Vituation Room coming up? Um, we're going to be talking about what's going on in India and the farmers' protests. So expect a lot of Hindu nationalists to get very mad at me, <laughs> um, just like Rihanna. See, me and Rihanna are very similar. <laughs> um, yeah, no. So we're going to get uh, someone, uh, Harsha Walia, who's been an organizer and activist in in Canada, and she writes and talks a lot about this. And then my good friend and comedian Nato Green. So Sunday night, be there. It'll be fun. Go check out the Vituation Room and, of course, all of your amazing work on uh, AJ+. And uh, I'm sure folks have seen, I don't know if you can still find it, your Medicare for All uh, mini doc. Is that what you call it for MS, NBC? Yeah, yeah, yeah it was a doc. It was an hour, it was but it's not available. Yeah, you can see snippets, snippets, snippets on my website. So, yeah, check out the snippets. Anything else to plug? Um, this Sunday or this weekend, I have a new Newsbroke episode coming out um, all about what we should be doing in response to white extremism um, rather than beefing up the security state. How can we actually make it just smarter um, after a lot of folks are saying we need a war on terror? It's like bup, bup, bup. Mm-hmm. I thought we were still in that. No. Yeah, I think I think war, we're war still war? not finished with the last one. Yeah. So no, Miki, thank you so much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And thanks to everybody in the chat. Go check out News Newsbroke on, uh, no, Francesca's YouTube channel. That's what that is. Uh, go check it out and click subscribe. Subscribe. Oh, my God, I can't speak. I think I'm getting sick, guys. I shouldn't say this publicly, but I've been feeling a little under the weather today, and I'm hoping, like, just I'm going to put the energy out there. Can you put out good energy that I don't have COVID? That's my only concern is. I think I'm just a little worn down. So, <laughs> Vitamin D, Nomi. Okay, bye. I, I wouldn't normally ask people to do that, but I'm like, I believe in good energy, so throw it this way. All right, uh, let's go through the, the chats to everybody who gave us super chats. Thank you. Steel Miles says, Nomi, they can't risk setting a precedent of cash relief. That's right. Uh, the ruse is in jeopardy. They have to feign that they can't help. I think I get that. Steel Miles also says Francesca is the best at making bad news funny. Gina Hograffe, I apologize. Coffee and snacks on me. Thank you. Um, no, thank you. That's very kind of you. That'll definitely, the coffee is, is pricey as we know. Uh, Robosol, I basically found y'all different pop. All, y'all's different podcasts from when y'all go on each other's shows. It started with no filter. I love it. Oh my God. Yes. Funny thing is she has no filter. I used to host a show called The Filter on SiriusXM. Pete says, can hardly imagine a better Fun Friday lineup. I agree. Y'all are some of the most powerful leftist women of our age. And I thank you for your work. Thank you, Pete. And in Enco Sen says two of my favorite online lefty women talking about a critical issue. Love you both and keep it up. Also, you should both interview Alfred McCoy of US Geopolitics XP. Good to know. I will write that down. Invisible Queer on Twitch says it's funny because it's not the fascist liberals that perpetuate this misogyny, but the anti-woke vanguard parading as a people's movement. Accountability is hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we go. Kyler Asado says, I think the left should be stronger in understanding and controlling the conversation on feminism as a whole. Take it back from the Taylor Swift and Beyonce type of capitalist feminism. Agreed. That's something that we are trying very hard on the show to do regularly. I think we, we, we delved in deep today. Um, we're just going to continue that. So check us out on Fridays. Steel Miles again says, no, me. Uh, oh, we got that one already. I apologize. Uh, and then Ray Lee says, heard some great talks from the matriarch event yesterday, especially from Senator Nina Turner and Sarah Nelson. Made me want uh, to run through a wall for everyone like the Kool-Aid man. Matriarch, hashtag matriarch is best. Agree. Um, we are going to be doing more of that stuff. Uh, matriarch has this big, sum, this, uh, big 
the training program uh, in the spring where we're recruiting labor women to run for office and also uh, support staff that has labor background because they're some of the best organizers to help these campaigns out. It's a big project. It's never been done from what I understand. So uh, if you are able, go check out Matriarch Movement, uh, raising money right now for the first event. That's what the fundraiser was yesterday, the first training. I think uh, the goal is $30,000 if I'm correct. Ian Kinzel also says, feels like a lot of leftist man men can't imagine a better future, a better life, or a better self beyond the status quo plus cash. And then Edward Coates says, leftists have, have long been like a poor family fighting over money. We've forgotten what to do with political capital because we rarely have any. That's true. We rarely have it. Sufar says, do you say, oh, oh, here we go. See, I don't even, there is no difference. Okay. I think what you're saying, Sufar, is do I say gyro or do I say gyro to flex your Greekness? The other day, I said suvlaki, nomi style, in honor of your will ordering. You're welcome. Um, I say yiro always. It's always yiro, not gyro. Uh, and it's suvlaki. So in Greek, they're accents, and they're really important. So it's nomi ki, but it's suvlaki, not suvlaki. But I get what you're saying there. But good, good take. I like that. Michael McAllister, $15 minimum wage proposal wasn't going to fully kick in until 2026. $15 is not even enough to live on right now in 2021. Correct. Uh, there are these studies that have come out showing that nobody in America, doesn't matter if you're in a big city or not, can afford a one-bedroom apartment for a $15 minimum wage with a $15 minimum wage. Joe Mo says, keep space demilitarized. Yes. And Chris Sanders sends love. And Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska once again send in love every day. Al Walski, keep on keeping on. Give what you can, when you can, no matter how small. Many minnows make a whale. Agreed. Oh, my God. We have more. Look at this. Uh, all right. So those in the super chat and live chat, YouTube and Twitch, Harvey K, of course, always Professor Harvey K, show it up. He's part of our book club. If you haven't already read his book, go check it out. We have two podcasts with him up on Patreon right now with the book club. And big thanks to Docs and Mario Q for working those algorithms. And today, because it was a powerful show, trolls showed up. But we have amazing people in our chats uh, Bob, Choke, and The Orb, and Chuck Diesel on YouTube. Thank you for keeping the chat room troll-free. And of course, Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, and Nug Wrangler on Twitch. Oh, and one more. Art, thank you for the love. And thank you to everybody. I'm going to go get a little bit of rest. I'm hoping I'm just a little winded. Uh, but send me your good energy, too, so that I am healthy. Um, I was actually commenting how I don't think I've been sick all year, like in the last year, which is amazing. I just said that the other day. And of course, this is when I start to wear down. Good thing it's the weekend. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. We will see you on Tuesday. As always, especially today, solidarity.